Hello and welcome back to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation. Coming up on the News Digest, ageism in events, the last taboo to be broken. Fancy a pub wedding? More venues allowed to host weddings thanks to the new budget. Tell me a story instead. Jeff Bezos bans PowerPoint in meetings. All that coming up as Ed is back with Charlotte, Richard and Sam for the News Digest. Later in the episode, I'm speaking to Tom Dennis, CEO and founder of Serenity in Leadership, who has some essential advice for modern leaders. I mean, there's still leaders around who, who get really suspicious if people are being happy. And then we're back with the News Digest team as they chat about insights to develop your professional and personal life. Evening, everyone. Delighted to have you all back. It's been a while we've all been together, us four, I think. It is. I think it is, Ed. You're right. Since before the summer. We've had Event Lab in the meantime, obviously. And thank you, Richard and Sam, for being live on stage at Event Lab. How did you find it? The cut and thrust of the live experience. Normally, we're in this little pod. How did you enjoy it? It was great fun, actually, to see the whites of their eyes, the actual audience looking back at you and expecting some pearls of wisdom. It was great. It made you raise your game a bit. I missed this delightful studio and the warmth that we create when we're podding. It is really, really warm. Toasty. Charlotte, welcome back. Thank you. Lovely to see you. It's been a while since you've been on. I know, it has been a while. Yes, it's um, time has flown. Time has flown. Plenty to discuss. We're going to kick things off today with something that we saw in Conference News, and it's about ageism in events. Ageism is apparently the last taboo of events, according to this article. The industry remains one which courts youth over experience, apparently. Is that true? Well, as the oldest person here, probably by a margin, um, I would honestly say that um, I still think I can do the job I you did 20 years ago. Um, I can't recover as quickly, but I can still deliver what I was delivering then. I, the, the balance is appropriate age for the either the, what you're representing. So if you're representing a very modern brand to millennials, then sometimes someone who's had 30 years experience might not be the right person. However, their experience is very valid in that instance. But I think it's making people confident with the people they're talking to who are going to be delivering that event is the most important thing. The age probably is not totally material. It's just, is that person the right person put in front of those clients to make them feel comfortable that, that you're going to deliver? Charlotte, what's the, what's the average age of interest of your of your business, roughly? Oh, crikey. Um, I would say um, late 20s, probably, um, apart from um, the senior management team. Um, but then there aren't many um, mid-40-somethings that want to be watching people at 2 o'clock in the morning in a venue after they've had two bottles of wine ahead. So um, I think it's um, probably... Uh, fair to say that the reason why our delivery staff are within their sort of late twenties and sort of early thirties is because the energy that you still you need to have to deliver is not necessarily the energy that you have when in your sort of mid to late forties or fifties. Yeah. You know that's that's you've sort of done your time at that stage in terms of the delivery, perhaps, and you're focusing on other elements. But that's not to say that your role as you get a bit older isn't doesn't just alter. Um, and perhaps you might be in a new business role or a more strategic role um, or, a man- or a managerial role. Sam, how about you? I think, um, it, obviously, the author of the article may have a slight issue with this, hence writing the article. Um, I think leadership comes in all shapes and sizes, 
And I think as leaders and maybe, you know, the more experienced people or older people in the industry should embrace the talent. We actually have a talent gap. We can't see that there's a massive solution in the short term about that. Um, I think sometimes there's a need for um, people who don't see this as a leadership thing to sort of feel the need to be relevant. And maybe that's where some of this might stem from being controversial and it says it's the last taboo this article that can't be right surely i wouldn't have thought so no because there's lots more we were talking about in one of the other podcasts about the 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 taboo of people feeling vulnerable in events um in a very um energetic social environment and when you should step in and make people feel comfortable that they're not going to be approached and it's not going to get a bit ugly towards the end of the night you know the, the, the the taboos are the social engagement issue, I would say, rather than how old a person is either running the event or something. Yeah, and there's still a gender taboo. There's still, you know, not enough women coming through into senior leadership. Um, you know, it is changing. It's changing too slowly. Um, there's pay gaps. There's those things. So I don't think this is the last taboo by a long shot. Absolutely not at all. I was a little bit surprised to see it, I'll be honest. But we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep an eye on it. Right, going to swing things round to, this is something I saw about weddings. Now, more venues are going to be able to host weddings as a result of Chancellor Philip Hammond's budget. The whole process of a venue applying for a wedding licence is to be relaxed, according to Mr Hammond. Under current rules, venues have to identify a specific room to host ceremonies. They can have no alcohol sold or consumed in that room in the hour before the couples walk in to make their vows. The, the feeling is that uh, this red tape deters many small businesses, independent spaces perhaps, uh, from applying for a, a wedding licence, driving costs up. This is, all, uh, this is all to change, apparently. Is this a, is this a great thing? Well, as someone who recently got married um, about a year ago, I would say because it's so extortionate to get married um, these days and because every vendor on the planet basically raises their prices if you are getting married, I'd say this is a, a very good thing for a lot of people who don't want to spend vast quantities of money on venues um, that are doubling their rates if it's a wedding. Um, so, you know, I'm sure there'll be lots of interesting, quirky locations now that will become available um, for for weddings, which weren't before. In fact, there was an amazing venue, I'm going to give a bit of a plug, um, that I went to a wedding um, earlier on this year at a place called Kingdom, which is in Kent, which is just the most stunning location. And it's an absolutely sort of... Um, indication actually of the kind of venues it was a sort of glass box in the middle of a wood and they got married um in the middle of the wood all sort of out al fresco but then there was this the roof of the venue was this amazing roof terrace that you could see all the way down to hastings it was absolutely incredible and so these kind of quirky locations are now cropping up um which i think is really great if you really want to get married and a lot of there are a lot more secular weddings than they were and also a lot more weddings when people are mm. using their own money so therefore they don't want they're not going down the process of getting married at the local church putting marquee up in the parents garden of 30 years ago they're they're saying where can we get married we've just sold one at the science museum for next year for instance so people are going to places mm. they feel an affinity to that stamps their own um nature onto it and, and that's that's I think, going to be only enhanced by what mm. Philip Hammers wants to do. And taking your point in terms of costs, you know, I was listening to a, a BBC, I think it was The One Show, talking about Asian weddings and how they have just increased in price over the last few years. 
to the point where people are taking second mortgages out on their homes and so on and so forth. I think this will open up the competition, which mm. means that uh, prices possibly will go down. I think where there's been maybe some of these venues have been able to dictate, as you said, those extortionate and those really high rates, you know, that should change. So I think it's a good thing for the market and good thing for people who choose to get married. It's a halcyon days for smaller independent venues. Absolutely. So much to hear about businesses wanting the smaller, newer creative spaces for product launches and company away days, you hear all about that. Has it ever, ever been so good for the, for the small players? I think so, because weddings are getting smaller, because it's gone in the days when there's 250, 300 people at a big society wedding. You know, there are you know, people want 180, 120, now getting to 80, now getting to 50. And so if you can, if you can feed in a, a stream of venues that fit into that profile, all well and good. And the same, I think, for quite a lot of corporate events. They're trimming off the, the also-rans and the plus-ones and just wanting the decision-makers, mm -hmm. and the, the events are getting slightly smaller as well. I think everybody wants to find something that's a little bit different and to create a different experience. I don't necessarily think that that's not applicable to weddings. I mean, I, you know, in the corporate market, certainly everybody wants that that ghastly buzzword experiential. Um, uh, you know, want, wants that, uh, you know, wants that feel. Um, and um, and this, this, should, this should help with that, definitely. I think people say that they want it and actually then they revert back to exactly what they've done for the last five years because... Uh, so many right? organisations are risk averse, but we're talking about weddings and let's keep it light and romantic. <laughs> let's not bring it down to the cynical level. Are brides and grooms risk averse? Less yeah. so. Ooh, pretty risk averse, aren't they? I mean, let's, right, it's let, your let, one, you know, according to what you know, what people say, it's the one day. It's you well, know, it's and, your and, one and special fair, day, isn't it? The groom is basically a passenger on the journey, anyway. I mean, let's not yep. beat around the bush here. Yep. <laughs> Most brides brought, brought along to make up numbers <laughs> yeah, at the tasting, exactly. but it's not really there, is he? <laughs> no. So not so good, I suppose, for the big established venues who have, you know, they've got their wedding licenses. They generally do a brilliant job of putting on weddings. Not so, I suppose, not so, not such good news for them. What do they need to do to to, to kind of react? Do you know what? I, where, if where, anything. Well, I mean, just talking more about some of the other suppliers, the things that really astonished me were things like photographers that were charging eight grand, <laughs> you know, for a day, you know, which just seemed utterly untenable to me. Um, you know, so it was kind of the other sort of bolt-ons that were actually costing the money. Which... So now you get the photographer and you get the video photographer and yeah. now you get the drone man yeah, who well, also brings a mate with him as well. <laughs> so you've got three... There's, there's and then you've got to feed them all. Yes, exactly. There's more cameras <laughs> than there is at the Royal Ascot. Or one of those I think the more traditional... And I, You know, some of uh, the clients that we work with certainly have seen a downturn in weddings, but I think you have to evolve and the whole world, you know, we have to change and adapt and look at those opportunities and, and you know, perhaps there's a season and everything goes in trends. So at the moment, you know, it might be that people are looking for that festival type mm. wedding and very much more sort of eco and out there. But, you know, it's peaks and troughs and trends will change and then something else will happen and they'll come back into favour. So you adapt, you evolve and you look at other markets and try and exploit those. So it's just about being smart. One thing I do know is that when, when people want to get married, they want to know about every single 
conceivable space and an option in the in the entire world. So oh, do you know they're damn sight harder from a venue point of view to work with a couple. You know, I'd rather work with a nineteen hundred person conference with really complex yeah. speakers and technology, um, and you know, crazy different types of food offerings and what have you, rather than a wedding. I'm mm-hmm. not going to lie to you; they are a nightmare. You can work for three months on a on a wedding, and then at the finally finally found it, and at the last minute, you know the the, the, the groom's aunt flies in from Canada and decides that actually she wants to do it at the great grandfather's house in. Yeah, and everything's so be... everything's so emotive around a wedding. I mean, when back in the back in the good old days of the Barbican, you know, we had a you know it was the first time where we had to really understand social media. So it was a long time ago, because the bride was a bit of a bridezilla, and suddenly she's tweeting all over the Barbican Centre, and it was very emotive because that's what a wedding is. Mm. Whereas with at least with a business event, whilst there is emotion and there, you know, there is the experience and the output for the participants, at least there's sort of some scientific stuff around it. So, yeah, definitely prefer the corporate. 100%. When you see that bride turn up with her file that she's been building since the age of eight, oh, with Lord. pictures of mermaids onwards, <laughs> and, and, and her mother comes, who's also had an idea ever since the birth of how, what a daughter's wedding is going to be like, and a sullen groom, and then they go through all the process and the tasting, and then the father turns up and says, absolutely not, we're not having the hot air balloon yes. and the 14-page bodies. This, this, this is not it's complex, the, it's stressful. Back. You know, it's not, Good luck to these new venues. Yeah. Good luck to them. <laughs> exactly. Interesting development. Guys, how many meetings... Have you been in today? Three. Three? Two. Sam? I have to tell you, I haven't, I've had a day off today. Had a day off. Unbelievable. I've been watching my <laughs> step-niece perform in the West End on her debut. <laughs> Bravo, Kyla Brown. What was the show? It was the Simon and Garfunkel story. So no meetings today, but I'm making up with it. I've got six tomorrow. <clears throat> six tomorrow. Have you heard what Jeff Bezos, Amazon founder and boss has to say about meetings. Tell us, Tell Ed. Us, Ed. <laughs> so I thought this was really interesting to pretty much anyone and everyone. So Jeff Bezos has basically banned PowerPoint in any executive meeting at Amazon. He said he's, he's favouring a narrative approach, which I think is pretty pretty different to what most of us normally expect from meetings. So instead of reading bullet points on a PowerPoint slide, everybody in the meeting sits silently for 30 minutes at the beginning of the meeting to read a six-page memo that's narratively constructed with real sentences, uh, topic sentences, verbs and nouns. So people sit there for half an hour before a meeting and read, essentially read a, an essay about what the meeting is all about. I mean, we're, we're conditioned to do the complete opposite, aren't we? But is this a uh, banning PowerPoint? Is this, is this the future? Hurrah. <laughs> Can I just say, this is Jeff Bezos of Amazon, because he's not doing that badly, is he, yeah. as far as yeah. business is concerned? Right. So perhaps he's doing something right, as this yeah. is. Yeah. What I hate is that idea that people are sort of looking at you on stage and you're trying to use PowerPoint and, just, and they're reading the slide behind you, which I don't allow anymore. We, we, we use images or we use video or something <laughs> to illustrate and engage them. And you tell them the facts, and you hopefully they're absorbing it because you're telling them, rather than re- reading behind your head. And I think it's nothing. really, really excellent. And I also think not that I think an awful lot of Elon Musk, but in terms of you know, if this meeting isn't adding value to your day, or you're not able to contribute in a valuable way, then don't be in it. I think we see so many times where we get a whole load of papers on an email to read, and we're all busy, and 
what happens is, is we don't read those things. I don't think I'm the only one, mm-hmm. you know, or don't read them as, as much as perhaps we should do. So we're not actually as prepared as we should be in these meetings. So I think um, Mr. Bezos has got a really, really good thing here. He knows that people are going to read. As you said, it's not it's good narrative. So it's actually being condensed into something that people understand. And interestingly, well, he's not sending it out before for you to read to prepare for the meeting. You're in the meeting and you read it. Sit there so you're really engaged at that point. Now to things, right, so Jeff's, Jeff's given his reasons for this. Uh, uh, and apparently our brains are hardwired for narrative. So indulge me on this. Anthropologists say that when humans gain control of fire, it marked a major milestone in human development. Our ancestors were able to cook food, which was a big plus, but it also had a second benefit. People sat around campfires, swapping stories. Stories served as instruction, warning, and inspiration. Uh, and as a result, we process our world in narrative. We talk in narrative. And uh, most important for leadership, people recall and retain information more effectively when it's presented in the form of a story, not bullet points. I think that's that fair. Right? I think that's fair. You get an emotional engagement, don't you? We are, but I mean, a lot of people are also um, absorbed via visual. Um, it's not just being um, talked at, because whether you're being talked at and you're being talked at via a PowerPoint presentation or whether or not you're being talked <coughs> at via a story, you're still being talked at. Um, so I would just question um, the, media, the medium of the content that's being presented um, and to ban PowerPoint, but actually produce something that's going to create an elevated level of engagement and actually what content is meant to do is actually engage the room most powerpoint presentations don't engage anything at all Mm. so you know it's the content really that needs to be looked at Um, and whether that comes in the form of the story whether that comes in the form of pictures something that we've done um, quite a few times is um, engage scribes who will actually create the murals and the cartoon effects to the actual narrative itself so you create the story and people are actually therefore able to visualise it um, and, um, and, and absorb the information that way and then also the client can then or the presenters or the, the company can actually take that um, visual away with them and use it as some kind of brand material or something like that. So that's kind of a different mm. way of looking at it. But the engagement piece is pretty crucial to the whole reason why you're there. If you look at um, IBTM <coughs> that's happening in a couple of weeks' time, you know, the format of... And the format of a lot of meetings now, campfires are a very, very popular meeting design. Because of that, it is all about engaging and sharing and I think storytelling, whether that's through photos or whether that's through speaking with a narrative, is the way that we all learn. You think about how we learned when we were kids. We're no different now. And I think, you know, I'm no neuroscientist, but I think that storytelling is very powerful and with the right content and medium as well. I think the only thing that mixes up meetings... <coughs> I mean, uh, we always find a high space. Stand, standing up doing meetings is, is a great way to get stuff done quickly. Mm. You... Yeah. Yep. Then people don't feel comfortable. So, Sam, you're going to write six essays for for the participants of your six meetings tomorrow? They're all campfire storytelling-type meetings. That's a lot of toasted marshmallows. That's a lot of toasted marshmallows. (laughs) I do love a good marshmallow, though. Great stuff, guys. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Next up, I'm sitting down with Tom Dennis from Serenity and Leadership, who has some essential advice for modern leaders and how you can create a better workplace culture through self-reflection and communication. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the Event Lab podcast. Thank you. Great to have you on. You are from Serenity in Leadership. Could you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about what it is you guys do there? 
Yeah, Serenity and Leadership is a, is an organization that was born out of a culture change organization called Phoenix Obsidian, which I set up back in uh, 1994. And we worked with uh, all sorts of organizations, helping them uh, change their cultures, particularly in, in things like um, mergers and acquisitions, when uh, you bring two organizations together. And I think these things are led by financiers who can see how to make money in the, in the short term. But they really don't look uh, at what it means to the people and how uh, different cultures are of organizations, even in the same industry, even doing the same thing. And so uh, we've helped organizations come together and, and actually care for the people so that uh, the actually they save a phenomenal amount of money if they, if they, if they do these things uh, well. And about two years ago, um, I started to look at uh, the masculine and the feminine in organizations, and it, it really struck me that the feminine is, is suppressed, not just in men, but actually largely in women. The, the, the workplace is based out of a kind of masculine model and masculine thinking. Mm -hmm. And so serenity and leadership was really uh, a way of bringing leaders together, both men and women, and to help them explore what it would be like uh, to, to kind of answer the question, what would it be like if, if they were fully expressed? People talk about balance. Um, it, it, nobody's got sort of 50% of one, 50% of the other, and we're all unique, we're all different. But typically, people's feminine does tend to be suppressed in order to survive and, and thrive. I think one of the most amazing things is how much energy it takes to suppress. Mm -hmm. And that's energy that if it, if it was released, could be uh, directed towards creativity and innovation and um, looking to create a place which is fun to be at mm. and um, where people could be actually happy. I mean, there's still leaders around who, who get really suspicious if people are being happy. It's Victorian, but there, there still are that kind of thinking. So that was the aim of serenity mm. and leadership. And and if you, <clears throat> if you're a leader and you're coming from a genuine place, we've all got an inner wisdom, if you like, and that comes from the gut and it comes from the heart, uh, as opposed to the head. Mostly leadership comes from the head. That's largely driven by the ego, and the ego is one of the biggest liars you can meet in your life. So we lie to our egos and our egos lie to us and we have this, this dialogue going on as opposed to um, arriving at a place of inner peace where one's own wisdom can begin to emerge and hence the serenity in leadership. That's a long answer yeah. to your question. but I mean, <laughs> Fascinating stuff. <laughs> Sounds like a lot, a lot of, you know, kind of what leaders can do to improve really starts with kind of introspection and a lot of self-correction rather than what leaders can do externally to shape their workplace? I mean, how, how would you suggest that leaders kind of go about beginning that kind of process of self-reflection? There's this saying about um, slowing down to speed up. When, uh, when I talk, talk to leaders in organizations, um, very often they don't have time. I think there is this sort of sense of um, people being driven by very short-term uh, goals where actually when people take time out, and you know, there's lots of 
sort of quite well-known characters, they take time out in the day just to chill. Some some people meditate. I mean, Richard Branson's a good example of that. He takes out sort of really short periods of time during the day where he is not interrupted, he's just quiet. And uh, it gives him an opportunity to, to reflect. And I remember years ago driving up the uh, the M25 and, and having left where I w- was living and being about 15 miles away from home and then just remembering that I'd forgotten something which I really needed for the meeting I was going to. Mm. And then thinking, I, I knew I had to pick it up before I left. And I knew that, that there was that little voice inside me that said, don't forget to pick mm. this up. And I remember shouting in the car, speak louder! <laughs> because I, I couldn't... Uh, I, I was just ignoring it because there was so much buzz and stuff going on for me. And uh, it's not a case of speaking louder. It's creating the space and the silence where the little voice can be heard. Because it it's never going to shout at you. It's just, it's just there. And we don't allow the space to, to, to listen to it. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, I imagine so many event professionals probably struggle with finding that space. I mean, how did you kind of start finding those moments? Well, the purists would say that between 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the morning is the best time to meditate. I, I, <laughs> I have to say, I, um, I don't have that discipline. But nevertheless, just giving yourself a little bit of space um, at the beginning of a day, setting up a routine. Um, and uh, I, I think a lot of people who write do this. You know, they they have they set up a routine. They have a discipline. They'll write for an hour or whatever it is every morning, and then they'll go off and and do their whatever their their, their full day is. Everybody's different, um, but I, I think just what people would report, I think, is that if they give themselves that little bit of time, it pays them huge dividends. And it's always easy to say, I'm too busy. And there's always something that you can be doing. But is that the best use of your time? And uh, it's it's like I was talking to some people this morning about you know, how incredibly busy and how things are changing and they're speeding up and there's more pressure and it's more complex and, and all the sort of things that leaders are, are trying to deal with. And just giving that little little piece, I mean, you know, it could be five minutes. Hmm. Five, maybe ten minutes. What one tends to do, if if you if you just create that that space, is that it's much easier to prioritize. It's much easier to to say, I'd love to do all these things, but this is what's important. You make better decisions, basically. So you can create the space. It's it's a self discipline, and it pays dividends. It's like a lot of these things. If people invest the time, they do get a very good return. Mm. Yeah, and I think perhaps the, ne- the next thing I re- really wanted to talk to you about was on the Serenity and Leadership uh, website, kind of one of the, the core messages that I saw first was um, Serenity and Leadership create spaces for honest and thought-provoking discussion in teams. And that's really interesting because we were chatting to uh, Simon McRory, who uh, wrote a book all about uh, teams uh, in our last episode. His kind of the key things that he stressed was you need to have spaces where people feel comfortable suggesting their own ideas, speaking up, kind of challenging, but within a safe space. 
Um, and so that, I mean, that seems like a really important thing. And I was wondering if you had sort of advice for leaders and kind of how they can create a safer space for their employees. Yeah, we use uh, we use dialogue, uh, you know, in the formal sense. Um, I mean, was actually sort of worked out, thought about by David Bohm, who was a nuclear um, physicist, uh, and he really realised that um, when people feel safe, uh, they can express themselves, and uh, this sense of being listened to is so powerful. So as a leader, it's about creating a space where people can feel like they're not judged. Hmm. And uh, so we, it, with the dialogue, we, 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 we sort of kind of teach people about w what to do. And a lot of this is about listening. And people, most, if you ask most managers, what's one of your skills? You know, they'll say, oh, I'm a very good listener. <laughs> <clears throat> and actually, very few people are good listeners. Very few. Because we, we listen, we tend to listen to justify thoughts that we've already got. So we listen to take ourselves forward on a, on a trajectory that we're already on, <laughs> as opposed to just being open to whatever uh, comes towards us when someone speaks. Um, and in dialogue, people are really encouraged to first notice what's going on in them when they hear what the person is saying. Because we ha we'll have reactions, you know, oh, mm. I, I, really re I really agree with that, you know, therefore this person's a really good person, or I really disagree with that, therefore this person's a bad person, or I've got to do something. Uh, and and they're, they're immediately making up their response in their head as opposed to just allowing that, that whatever the person said to land on them. And the first thing, noticing how it lands. And, you know, if you have a, if you have a reaction that says, mm, I, I don't agree with that, to notice that and say, well, okay, so we are now in different places, and I wonder why that person is saying that. It, it's kind of the opposite of what's happening in social media today. Because people, um, and all the algorithms support this, you know, if you say you like something on Facebook, then Facebook will send you a bunch of things that are like that. So you tend to create a world where everybody agrees with you. Uh, and therefore, when you see something that goes contrary to that, you can get very angry. And that's why you've got, you know, on, on Twitter, for instance, these these horrendous um, this is a horrendous behavior of people being horrible to each other um, because they just want to hear what they like hearing. So, so this, 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 the whole concept of um, challenging oneself to why do I agree with that and it, what's the validity in what is the other person is saying. So all, the, all these things are underpinning the, the dialogue. And uh, we found, because we've, we've done a lot of dialogues around gender um, and um, power and the use of power. And what we found is that, you, because, I mean, there are these trends going on because of Me Too and Time's Up and mm -hmm. I think a very powerful hashtag that came out after the Kavanaugh hearings in, in the U.S. was why I didn't report. 
which I, I really think that's an important hashtag, actually, and I, I think it's going to have a big sort of knock-on mm. effect. What, what that has done is sort of release a load of anger, particularly in people who feel put upon or abused or uh, treated unequally, which tends to be women um, or p- other, you know, we get into the whole thing about gender identities and, 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 and so on. Um, and uh, typically men who have grown up with a particular model about how to be. And uh, so you get angry women and confused men. And the dialogues are brilliant for that because it creates a space where uh, typically the, 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 the people who are angry can express themselves without somebody coming back and justifying themselves. Because that just completely um, negates what has been said. So when they feel heard, they can then say, ah, there's a, there's a, you, can, you can feel that sort of relaxation in the, in the whole room. And then um, it gives a space for the men to then say, well, you know, and I'm really confused and I feel... And, and all of a sudden, the, the women are then becoming interested in the men's point of view, which up until then they couldn't get, give a damn about because they just feel like they're unheard. They haven't been heard. And when people feel that they haven't been heard, they just get uptight, anxious, stressed, tense. Uh, and there's, that's no space for listening. So we've had this kind of healing process that's taken place in the dialogues. And... Uh, uh, it's something that we're trying to do in as many organizations as we can. I mean, clearly in an organization, it's a little bit different in that to create a safe space um, is, is still the aim. But the fact is that people have got to live with each other afterwards. Mm. <laughs> so you're not going to get people to, uh, who are going to really fully express because it takes a long time to feel the trust and the safety. But when you get an organization that is sufficiently enlightened that they really encourage this you do get very open communication and uh this this sense of i can challenge anybody and it's okay and it's Mm. not because i've got an agenda it's because i disagree or i think i've got a really good idea and i want to add something and nobody's listening to me so if if people can express themselves fully you you i mean the, the the company sings. I, I, I mean, it, it buzzes, and and it's it's just so powerfully um, creative, and mm. and so on. They do really well. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's better for the people, and it's more equitable for the company. So everyone wins. It it is a win win. It is a win win, and uh, I think uh, the, the kind of things that um, ma- male CEOs, if I can put it like that, uh, but it's not just them, but um, leaders, senior people in organizations that tend to be men uh, don't like going down that road because they can't, in the, f- in the first instance, see the value in investing the time, which gets back to what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago. Sometimes you have to slow down to speed up. Mm. And, um, I mean, I, I, I ran a, a change program in a very large multinational bank some years ago, and it was sponsored by a a guy uh, who was very forward-looking and he wanted uh, all all his senior leaders to to learn about leadership and also communication. And then halfway through the program, he was promoted and the guy who came in instead of him 
called me into his office and he said, uh, what is this program? Tell me about this program that you're running. Uh, talked to him about it. And he said, it's not going to change them, is it? And I said, well, I actually I think it is, yeah. And he said, I don't want that. I want them on the desk. I want them making money. That's it. And he binned the program. Right. And it was so sad because it was doing so well and people were loving it and they were learning. And they were particularly learning from each other because we, we used to, to run these events where managers from different departments would come in and they would explore what was going on for them within the context of what we were looking at in terms of leadership and communication and so on. And, and uh, it was so healing for a lot of people because they, they'd say, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one with this problem. And now I see there's other people. And not only that, other people with the same problem, they're dealing with it in ways that I had never thought of. And that's all within the same company. But, you know, different departments that were just sort of separate. Constructive spaces where people can communicate with each other are hugely healing and very creative. So the structure of those dialogues, would that be a kind of a whole company meeting with perhaps uh, an external person leading the dialogue or is it something, or is it a kind of smaller kind of within individual teams in the company? When you've got a formal uh, dialogue, the numbers need to be reasonably uh, contained. There are ways to do it with, with larger numbers. I, I use what's called the goldfish bowl process. Um, but the, the dialogues we've been running have been most successful up to about 15 for that, yes, they're facilitated because you've got some. You've got to have somebody who holds the space until the organisation can do it themselves, and it's a skill and it's a discipline because you've got to be able to say, "Oh, hang on a sec, uh, you were a bit fast off the mark there." Just allow what that person has said to sink in for everybody before you come back. One of the things that we do in those dialogues is we don't uh, uh, allow. Um, sounds very prescriptive but essentially it's a ground rule that you don't talk to a person if you want to sort of clarify something you put it to the middle i this is what i've heard and it doesn't quite make sense to me i'd really like to learn a little bit more and therefore then that person can respond or somebody else will pick it up it's this this concept of putting things back into the middle which is you know when you meet in circle that's it's it's such an ancient Mm way of meeting and uh, the fact that it still exists and people use it all over the world kind of suggests that it's quite a good way to meet (laughs) Um, as opposed to having some hierarchical thing. Whenever I'm facilitating, I get rid of all the the tables. One of my nightmares is is facilitating a meeting where you've got a fixed table in the room and they can't get rid of it. I, I do whatever I can to get out of that and into another room where people can sit in a circle that there is no hierarchy in the same way in a circle. Very Arthurian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it works. Mm. It works. And, and, you know, even then, you know, if you talk about the Arthurian thing and why they sat in, in circles. So for, for larger uh, meetings, you know, um, the, 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 the format is, is very different. What, what do they call it? Um, town, town halls. I, I would think back to my days in in the Marines, where on board ship you'd have clear low deck, which meant that everybody came up onto the onto the the flight deck and uh, um, listened to. But that's a that's very much more a, a one way uh, communication. And what what we're looking for is something where people, um, the, the, in many ways, the listening is way more important than than what is actually 
transmitted. No, I think that's, I think that's something. There are so many event teams that that should really that should really consider it. I mean, so just to uh, kind of finish off, where can people find find out more about Serenity and Leadership? Well, we've got the the website. Uh, which is serenityandleadership.com. We've got an Instagram page, Serenity and Leadership. We've got a Facebook page. Uh, we've also got a Twitter th- uh, and LinkedIn, of course. So w- we're um, we're regularly putting out little thought starters, um, particularly on on um, Instagram and, and Facebook. We've got a a group, um, a discussion group on LinkedIn called um, Mastering Responsible Power, and. Um, that's that's uh, there's a number of people who've sort of come there, but I'd really like to get more of a dialogue going on 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 that. Well, we can certainly include a, a link to it in the in the show notes, perhaps. Brilliant. Get some more people into the conversation. Yeah. Um, I think we'll have to have to wrap things up there, but it's been it's been really insightful. Thank you so much for coming in to chat with us. Well, thank you. It's uh, it's been fun. And, uh... Now, to finish off the episode, the News Digest team are back and they are sitting down to chat about some ideas from 250 Insights to Develop Your Professional and Personal Life, a book that has been kindly sent to us by Lid Publishing. So the book shares 250 valuable insights and key learnings from leading authors and contributors from around the world. Among the many topics covered are entrepreneurship, management, innovation and leadership. So what I thought I would do is pick out some of these pearls of wisdom uh, from the book and see what you guys thought, see whether you agreed with them. Fabulous. Let's do it. Not all 250, I think. We probably <laughs> won't, uh, we won't do all 250, I would imagine. So this one's about leadership, and this is about the right time to make decisions. Hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Halt. Be honest with yourself. If your state of mind falls into any of the above four categories, leave the decision for another day. You are simply not up to making a call. There's a common British idiom that is instructive here. Sleep on it, defer your decision-making until you feel fresher. Is that right? Uh, Absolutely. I think you can add hammered to that list as well. (laughs) (laughs) But no, absolutely. It's it's the same rules apply to social media. Never do anything when you're any of those four or five um, because your faculties aren't attuned enough. Perhaps somebody should give this to Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Might be quite useful for him. Send, we've got a few copies now. Send, <laughs> send them I think, I that, think, I think it's really important that if you want to, if you're feeling something, I think you should write it down. I think um, it's reflective of where you are in your state Starting of mind and it's a good way of, you know, of developing yourself. And you learn this, I think, through making mistakes. To have that flash of frustration actually fires you up and makes you mm. feel more bullish about it um, sometimes it works hmm. but broadly thumbs up to that one yeah. mm-hmm. yes yep. Yep. okay number two so this one it's titled Benevolent Dictators if you respect the office hierarchy your work gets done faster students call teachers guru and at work the boss is considered the ultimate source of responsibility and power hierarchical relationships mean bosses tell subordinates what to do and how to do it seeking permission from those above is a sign of respect in India Bosses are like benevolent dictators who look out for their team. So talking about, uh, I guess, a, a, a hierarchical team structure, is that right? Or is, you know, is, a, is, a, is a flatter team structure better? Depends on what sector as well I think you're in. As a leader, you need, one needs to work with one's team um, and individuals in that team to achieve their individual personal journeys as well as their career journeys and assist them through that pathway. And that means 
that they have to... People start on wanting to take that direction from somebody else. And it gives them an aspirational journey yeah. to start on. I probably so think, you do a lot of, yeah, do a lot of mentoring. I do a lot of mentoring. Um, and I actually come along with leadership not being anything to do with hierarchy. And I think you can demonstrate leadership in whatever you're doing. There are skills of being a leader, which, you know, we can all demonstrate whether you're the cleaning lady at the hotel, whether you're the shoe shining chap at the station or whether you are the president of the United States. But they're still a leader and they're still someone who takes ultimate responsibility. Well, there's someone who takes responsibility, but everybody in an organisation should be a leader. I'd agree with that. Is that yeah. a mixed consensus on that one? <clears throat> OK. Great leaders are like parents. They don't always know what's best for their organisations and sometimes they feel insecure and scared about letting go. I think a good leader understands when to delegate um, and when to let go mm. because a business can't develop and it can't evolve if you continually try to keep hold of it. Richard, do you always know what's best for your organisation? No. Um, you, you do it by instinct and a bit of experience. And a bit, it's a bit like trying to bring my two small children up. You, you, you think you're being a good parent until you suddenly realise you've been completely rubbish and they're taking not a blind bit of notice, much <laughs> like people at work. Um, and so, no, I think you, you, you try and set... Pr- parameters you try and give people the space in which to grow and you try and give them the leadership to say this is where we want you to get to because this is what makes up either a very good business or a very nice 10 year old and you just hope that they take the lead you're giving them and 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 but you need they need to run around it they need to come out one side do something wrong come back in realize they've done something wrong go on a bit again that's the growth and that you can do that with individuals in business as well as you can small children what do you reckon sam no i think that being a leader I think the ultimate role of a leader is to do yourself out of your job. I think showing vulnerability makes you human, and we're all human at the end of the day. Um, I think in crises, you need to be in a position as a leader to take that control. Um, but I think you've got to have integrity and you know, showing, showing that little bit of vulnerability or insecurity, relaying the fact that you need the support of those team, that team around you, I think can only be a good thing. Do you agree with that, Charlotte? Yes. Um, not a, as, as somebody who leads people, you don't always have the answers um, and you can't always be right in the decisions that you make because, you know, nobody is always right. Um, and in actual fact, giving, you know, opening the floor to a whole world of different opinions, no matter whether somebody is right at the bottom of an organisation or right at the top is, is, in my mind, a good thing to do. And someone needs to know where it's going, and, and it's good to ask because someone mm. will come up with something that's even better. But it was like Stalin's comment: it's not who cal- it's not who votes is important; it's who counts the votes. So it is actually mm-hmm. taking in the, the information and making the best of it. Good quote. Good quote on the subject of great leaders and great parents, Richard. I know you've uh, got to get back to some uh, some ba- babysitting <laughs> later, so we're only going only to do one more. Only got time for one more, uh, and that is. Being constantly curious is a prerequisite of any successful and creative business person. Is that right? 
Totally. I wish I could turn my brain off sometimes. <laughs> Even when I'm sleeping, I'm still thinking <laughs> and if, if, dreaming. If you're not curious about the world and particularly your, your own business world, then you're not developing it, you're not testing it, you're not bringing anything new. Yeah. That's why I always look at the bottom of plates in restaurants, which irritates the, my wife, um, or take <laughs> menus away or, or have a look and see what something dressed in in a shop window. You know, if you're not curious about how it's been done, like when I sit at the theatre, I think, though, there's a smoke machine over there, but we haven't seen it used yet, so I wonder when that's going to come in. And it's like you lose yourself in the, in the experience, but that is what you take away from. And that's not just about business, that's about life. Mm. Um, if you practice meditation, then you know you need to be curious about where your thoughts go, how that world is being being curious in the present is important for self growth, and that's going to affect your life both professionally and personally. So, hundred percent, that's my favourite one of them all. So I suppose if you're not curious about something, you're you're not enjoying it, and if you're not enjoying it, you're not going to be effective in anything you're anything you're doing. Right? Pedestrian, otherwise. But but also, I think a lot of people who are <clears throat> um, climbing a just you know, climbing a corporate ladder, so to speak, are you know go in and clock in, clock out. Whereas um, a leader, somebody who's leading never really does that because they're constantly evolving and thinking and constantly asking the why always asking the why well i hope that's been interesting to the many people out there in the world of events fabulous guys thank you so much for your your insight that was brilliant and thank you very much for listening to the event lab podcast As always, you can find links to everything mentioned in the episode in the show notes below. If you enjoy the show, make sure to rate us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. If you have any questions or you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at hirespace.com. And finally, you can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at eventlab underscore online. Thanks very much for listening.